Thank you, Elder Kailu, for leading us in the reading of God's Word and the leading of this service. Uh, please join me in prayer as we come before the Lord. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what a privilege it is that we have you speak to us through your apostles and prophets. So we pray that as you do that right now, open our hearts to receive your word. And may the words that are found on my lips and meditation in our hearts bring your name glory. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you talk to any church pastor, and he or she will tell you that one of the most important things for any church fellowship is unity. Where the congregant members are not split into different camps, different factions, or even different splinter groups. Where the congregant members are truly welcoming of one another. But you talk to the same church pastor, and he or she will tell you that one of the most difficult things for any church fellowship is unity. Because there is just something within each and every one of us that resists unity, that resists a true welcoming of one another. And one reason for that, I think, is quite helpfully expressed by a popular local slogan um, that is said to have its origins from Thailand. So, can I show the first slide? Um, before that? Yeah. Sorry. Same, same, but different. Right? I'm sure we've heard this before. Uh, but here, I'd like to put the emphasis on the word different. So, we may be in the same church fellowship. We may be praising and worshipping the same Lord. We may be reading the same Bible. We may be same, same. But at the end of the day, we are still different. And the different could come from many things. It could be from different social demographics, different seasons of life, or just different life circumstances that make us different. But I say to you that even if all of the above were the same, that is, even if you find a church that has everyone from the same social demographics, the same season of life, same life circumstances. Uh, now, why anyone would want to be in such a homogeneous church is another matter altogether. But say you find such a church, okay, and there will still be one more key difference. Difference in views. Difference in the way that you and I see things. So these things could vary from very important core things, like our core beliefs, what and who we believe, um, the, what is often called the non-negotiable contents of our faith. It could also cover certain ethical and moral norms that govern how you and I live our lives. See, these would very often be put under the category of core things or primary things. And then, of course, the difference in the way that we see things could also extend to secondary and less important things. Secondary, non-essential beliefs. A particular way of doing ministry, living out one aspect of our lives, example, a certain parenting methodology, a certain work ethic, or the views that we hold towards current social or political issues. These would all be labelled under secondary things. And truth be told, you and I know that it is very often disagreement over these secondary things that causes us to be disunited, 
that leads to us failing to truly welcome one another. We think to ourselves, because at the end of the day, you don't see things the way that I do, then your faith must be suspect. In fact, it must be questioned even whether you are a true believer or not, because all true believers will see things the way that I do. See, you and I may not say it out loud, but that's how we think to ourselves. And based on that, we fail to truly welcome one another. That seems to be the problem that the Apostle Paul was addressing by the time he comes to Romans chapter 14. He hinted earlier towards the end of chapter 13 in verse 13 itself by telling the church in Rome to stop all quarreling and jealousy. And here in chapter 14, he addresses the issue head on. Now, commentators tell us that by the time Paul wrote the letter of Romans, there were probably already competing views on Torah observance, okay? Torah is basically the Old Testament law, so there were competing views on how the Old Testament laws should be observed within the church in Rome. There were differences of opinion among the Roman congregations about the role that the Torah should have in the life of the believers. And then the expulsion, uh, which happened in AD 49, and the return, which happened in AD 54, of the Jewish Christians probably worsened some of these tensions, since it was now debated who has the authority to arbitrate and decide on these disputes. Should it be the original Jewish Christians who had been kicked out and now allowed to return? Or should it be the newer and probably larger segment of Gentile Christians that have come about during their interim period? Either way, Paul is very clear with what he wants to say in this portion of Romans. In the words of Michael Bird, an Australian theologian, Paul, I quote here, does not want the Roman churches to fragment along ethnic lines or to have violent divisions over how to fuse Torah and Messiah. That's a nice way of putting it, how to fuse Torah and Messiah. And Paul's solution or words of advice is simple, and it forms the central idea running through the passage <clears throat> that we are looking at this morning. Paul tells the Roman Christians, the next slide please, you have one Lord who is Lord over all believers. So welcome one another, just as the Messiah welcomed you. That's the central idea that runs through the entire passage that we have just read. And this overall idea is further elaborated in the three sections that are present before us. So the first point, welcome one another, next slide, by not judging one another, especially over non-essential issues. In verses 1 to 12, Paul lists out the issues that were causing the differences in views or opinions. And I think there were three of them, at least as presented in this chapter. The next slide, please. There was the question of vegetarianism. And then next, there was the issue of observing sacred days. And lastly, that of drinking of wine. These were the secondary issues which carried a variety of opinions and views between those that Paul addresses in this letter as the weak and the strong. Okay? And here we have to clarify, weak or strong is not used to refer to the degrees or the quality of a person's faith. 
Okay? It is not used in that way. Rather, it is used with reference to the conscience of the person in relation to his or her faith. So a person who is weak in faith, in this case, would be one whose conscience is easily pricked or easily offended. So he or she will be more easily stumbled by these issues that are under consideration. Okay? So to give example of what I mean by a weaker conscience okay, versus a stronger conscience, um, I, I lecture at Trinity Theological College and I have this colleague of mine. He's quite playful in, in character. And so um, at the very first day of the academic year where we had a new class come in, um, uh, he was uh, uh, lecturing for the first time to that class. And then he went into class and he was wearing a jacket. And then he introduced himself. He found out the names of the students. And then he said he, go, he got up from his chair to write on the whiteboard. And as he did that, he took off his jacket. And then he was wearing a short sleeve shirt. And he exposed his whole arm that was full of tattoos as he wrote his name across the, 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 the board. Uh -huh. Actually, uh, he, was wearing, he wore a tattoo sleeve that he bought in the UK. Huh? And it so happened that the skin color of the, of the tattoo sleeve matched his skin color. Yeah. But as he did that, he turned around, he looked at the students, and you could see some of them were shocked. And they were shocked with disapproval. Okay? While others were beaming, and they said, wow, this is so cool, this lecturer is so cool, he's got tattoos all over his arm. Yeah. So in the example that I've just given, you could say that those who were affected by the tattoos, you could say that perhaps they had, would be in the weak category. Their conscience were affected uh, by what they saw. Okay? While those that didn't find anything wrong with it, okay, uh, you could say that they were in the strong category. So this weak and strong category, as Paul uses it here, is not meant to be an evaluation or indication of the strength and quality of a person's faith. It's not meant that way, but rather it's meant to be more of their consciences in relation to certain issues of the faith. Okay? In addition to that, in Paul's context, when he wrote this part of the letter, it was very likely that the weak were probably the Jewish Christians and the strong, the Gentile Christians. So let's see how these issues might work out for the weak. Now, for the weak, most likely the Jewish Christians, they have very likely been brought up in their pre-believing in Christ days not to partake much, or if not, any meat at all. And the reason for that would have been because of purity reasons. The Old Testament law in itself already prohibited the consumption of certain animals and it prescribed that blood should be properly drained from an animal before cooking it. So you already had this in the Old Testament laws, okay? Um, observance of the food laws down the Jewish tradition soon became a test case for loyalty to the Old Testament covenant, okay? And then lastly, it was not just the food itself. The fact that the meat was handled by Gentiles in the market that would have been enough to make many Jews wary of consuming it. And then meat itself was also often associated with ritual meals in the pagan temples. This is why for many of the Jews and even the Jewish Christians back in the, in the church in Rome, um, they were brought up thinking that the best way to avoid eating anything unclean was to abstain from meat altogether. 
Okay? That aside, the weak, when it came down to this issue of eating meat, might not just be limited to the Jewish Christians. It could also be some Gentile Christians who might have so associated the idea of eating meat with pagan rituals and sacrifices that they refrain from doing so, so as not to remind themselves of their idolatrous past. Okay? So that's for eating meat, the first issue. As for the keeping of sacred days, most likely referred to the observance of the Sabbath and Jewish festivals like Passover and Pentecost. Once again, due to the way that they were brought up before they became Christians, uh, many of the Jewish Christians would have strictly observed these days and festivals. And even now, they might still be in the habit of observing those days out of habit and custom. Okay? Habit is a very hard thing to change, and yeah? you and I know, right? Um, or the weak, in this case, could also be Gentile Christians who were too used to keeping Roman holidays and holding them with great significance that even now, they still observe those days. And lastly, with the issue of wine. Uh, here, some of us might want to sit up and here, yeah, <laughs> wine. The weak might choose not to drink wine so as to avoid drunkenness by excessive consumption which was just as well-known a phenomenon back in Paul's day as it is today, right? And furthermore, back in Paul's day, wine was often associated with idolatry. Why? Because this wine was often poured out as libations or offerings to pagan deities before it was served to one another, yeah? So hopefully it's clear how these three issues were causing differences in views among the weak and the strong in the Roman church back then. The weak were insisting that God's people had to be marked out on the one hand by avoiding certain things, meat and wine in this specific context, and on the other hand, they were to be marked out by observing some other things, sacred and special days. These were the things which the strong, however, regarded as insignificant. And the danger was that the weak might end up doubting the genuine faith and status of the strong, simply because the strong did not carry out the abstentions and observances. How come you don't do these things, eh? or you do these things? You sure you're Christian or not? That's how the weak might think of the strong. The strong, however, would have appealed to what is in their eyes better knowledge of these things and the private freedom that they have not to carry out these abstentions or observances. And the danger would have been the strong looking down on the weak and treating them with disdain. How come you still have to not do these things? Or how come you still have to do these things? You sure you're Christian or not? That's how the strong might think of the weak. Either way, both sides would have been judging one another. And that's precisely what Paul tells both the weak and the strong not to do. Don't judge one another. Why? The next slide, please. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In other words, why is it that we do not show judgment? The next slide, please. 
because Jesus is our Lord, He and He alone is our judge. And so when the weak passes judgment on the strong and deems that they are not genuine Christians, they are acting in the place of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is fit to be our judge, since He is our Lord. Similarly, when the strong passes judgment on the weak and despises them and treats them with disdain because of their tender consciences, they are similarly acting in the place of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is fit to be our judge, since he is our Lord. And instead of judging one another, Paul offers another principle in its place. A principle which instead of directing the gaze at the other, that's what we're so used to do, right? If anything happens, first thing we do is we look at others first, right? So this principle teaches us to cause us to search within ourselves first. Verse 5 to 6, Whatever you do or whatever you don't do as the weak or the strong, make sure it is done out of a firm, thought-through conviction and make sure it is done to the Lord. Done with respect to the Lord and in the context of thanksgiving to God. So why is it that we do not pass judgment? The next point. Because Jesus is our Lord, whatever that we do or don't do, in all of life or even in death, we belong to the Lord. So instead of first instinct turning outward to judge others, we should turn inwards to examine ourselves if what we do or don't do is first and foremost an indication of whether we belong to the Lord. All in all, I love the summary provided by Michael Bird of the first 12 verses, and I reproduce it for us here. Let me read for us. If we were to summarize verse 1 to 12, we could say that Paul is bent on stressing that Jesus is Lord of the weak. Example, teetotaling Sabbatarian vegan Jews and the strong. Example, wine seeping, Saturday shopping, bacon munching Gentiles. If God has justified them, they cannot condemn each other. If God has raised them up, they cannot put each other down. If they belong to the Lord, they belong to each other. If everyone calls him Lord, they must call each other brothers and sisters. If God has accepted them, they must accept each other. If they share the same faith, they share food together. As N.T. Wright puts it, justification by faith entails fellowship by faith. This is what justification by faith looks like when it sits down at the table of the Christian community. Beautifully worded. Second point, next slide. Welcome one another by not stumbling one another, especially by insisting on our freedom. In verses 13 to 23, Paul carries on to give further advice on how the weak and the strong can truly welcome one another. Not only are they to stop judging one another, they are also, to verse 13, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, placing a stumbling block or obstacle in someone's way means doing something for the purpose of creating offence to their brother or sister, manufacturing a disturbance toward another believer. In here, Paul's words would have appealed more to the strong. After all, isn't it the strong 
who have the greater tendency to so insist on the freedom that they have, and this is a rightful freedom that they can hold on to, a freedom either to do something or not to do something, and they so insist on keeping this freedom that they place their entitlement to that freedom over and against how their weaker brother or sister might feel. That's what Paul shows here by using his own views as an example. Verse 14, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Paul shows that with regard to the food laws, he himself identifies on the side of the strong. Right? He says there's nothing wrong. There's, there's no food that is unclean. Yeah, so he identifies with the side of the strong. Yet he will not want to so insist on his stand and freedom that he has so as to stumble the weak. Because Paul tells us if he did that, he would not be eating and he would not be walking in love. Verse 15. In fact, he'll be doing the complete opposite, destroying the one for whom Christ died. Um, not yet, sorry. Yeah. We have to be clear what Paul is asking for in these verses. He is not saying that the strong have to agree with the weak when it comes to the views on specific issues. He's not saying that. But he's saying that the strong should constrain the exercise of their freedom so as to promote love, peace, and unity. If the exercise of our private freedom over secondary issues leads to a stumbling of others, if it leads to strife and disunity, then we would have failed to exercise that freedom in the right way that God gave us that freedom for. And that is always to build the church up, not tear it down. So how does it work out in practice? Coming back to the example of body tattoos, it will mean, for example, that if you do get a body tattoo, maybe for the sake of weaker Christians, and very often this would be older Christians who would potentially be stumbled over seeing tattoos on a Christian. Why? Because um, their, their background, their cultures that they tend to associate tattoos with, gangs and secret societies, right? Because that was the culture that they brought up. Whereas for the young people today, what are you talking about? Body tattoos is not associated with that. Body tattoos is aesthetics. It's a form of beauty. Huh? Um, yeah. Uh, so what do we do? Maybe if you do get a body tattoo, cover it up in the presence of such weaker Christians. Cover it up, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> talking about this, I, I, I've come across a pastor the other day, uh, yeah, a pastor of another church, um, yeah, and I realized that um, yeah, he's got a tattoo tattooed across his forearm, yep, and the day when, when I met up with him, he was wearing a short sleeve shirt, yeah, and I have to admit that I couldn't help but kept trying to look at the tattoo and try to figure out what it was, yeah. Then I discovered that it was a Bible verse. Ah, how? Can Bible verse can tattoo? <laughs> I leave that up to you to, to decide. Uh. Yeah. Um, and then my scare. Personal confession that uh, if ever I was tempted to get a, a, a tattoo, I would, I, would, I would get one which, is, uh, which says, uh, Deus pro nobis, which means God for us. That this is really the God who is for us. Yeah. And uh, if uh, tempted to get another tattoo, uh, I would get one that says, um, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Yeah. But uh, I discovered that 
I'm a bit too old for that, for that age already, so that's why I decided to skip that. Yeah. But if, if ever you see me a day with a tattoo, then that, that explains the context why, okay? Yeah. Oh, another example, okay, I do enjoy, um, personally, I do enjoy a drink of wine or gin tonic, okay? Uh, but I'm very conscious in the presence of my students or fellow colleagues, especially uh, Methodist pastors. Uh, why? Because Methodist pastors have taken a pledge of abstinence from alcohol. Yeah, so I'm very careful not to drink in their presence or whenever I meet up with them uh, to mention anything about alcohol that might tempt them. Yeah? So my brother's a Methodist pastor, so whenever we meet up for family dinners, I always make sure that I keep all the wine and alcohol away. And instead, what I take out is the Hennekin Zero. You know, the, 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 the Hennekin beer with zero alcohol? Yeah. So. See, that, that's exercising private freedom in a way that doesn't stumble other brothers or sisters. Right? And then verse 19, Paul ends this point with these words. Verse 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I know these words are spoken in the context of the exercising of freedom over secondary issues, but I can't help but agree with Michael Bird when he says this. I have to confess that this is my favourite verse in Romans. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And how I wish that you'll be read out three times at the beginning of every diaconate, eldership, session, wardens, Presbyterian, Association, and Synod Meeting of Christians. I've been in full-time Christian ministry coming to 20 years now, and if you ask me how I see my role and the role of all that is in full-time Christian ministry, it's really that we are very often called to be bridges of peace. We are called to be peace builders. And to do that, very often, it will call for us not to insist on our ways and ideas. Even though we may have every right and reason and authority to do so. Just like the strong here have every right and reason and authority to insist on the exercise of their freedom. But if they were to do that, they will break the peace within the body life. Lastly, point three. Welcome one another as Christ Jesus welcomed us. Finally, in Romans 15, 1-7, Paul reinforces his central argument that undergirds his entire discussion here in chapter 14. This is how the strong should treat the weak in the same manner that Christ sought not to please himself but us. Christ Jesus did not think of himself first, but Christ Jesus thought of us. He did not consider his divine status as excusing him from the task of serving us by saving us. In other words, in the same way that Christ Jesus did not see the giving of himself to us as incompatible with his inherent strength, the strong likewise should not see the giving in to the weak as incompatible with them retaining their strong views. As we do this, the weak and the strong, not judging one another, not stumbling one another, but instead thinking of the other party, acting in love to build peace and unity. That's how we do verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Next slide, please. Living out Romans 14, 1 to 15, 7 today. 
Perhaps there is no passage more needed and application more right for the church today than what we have just gone through. For it's true, isn't it, that if anything, churches are more torn apart and split by secondary things than they are by primary things. That if anything, churches today resist a genuine welcoming of one another because of a disagreement over secondary things rather than primary things. And so, very sadly, these are true life examples that I'm about to give. How come you use the NIV version of the Bible? You should be using the ESV version, or better, you should be using the KJV version. And so we insist on the version of the Bible that we use, that we are willing to take one another to court. How come you don't preach in an expository verse-by-verse manner, uh, which I didn't this morning, by the way, if you notice, yeah? And so we insist on the method of preaching that we view anyone who doesn't do so as not preaching the true gospel. How come your church ordains women ministers? Or could very well be the opposite. How come your church doesn't ordain women ministers and we view each other's churches with suspicion based on whether they conform to our views on women's ordination or not? How come your church baptizes your infants and children and we view such churches as not truly reformed or worse still, as pseudo-Roman Catholic? Of course, these verses, examples that are given, uh, um, uh, these examples that are given are cited more at the level of the entire church than at the personal level. But you and I know that there's no shortage of examples at the personal level too. How come your body got tattoo? You true Christian or not? How come you go clubbing? You true Christian or not? How come you never attend this particular Bible study program that's very, very good? You true Christian or not? How come you attend Pink Dot? You true Christian or not? Or you support LGBTQ, is it? How come you support this particular political figure or political party? You true Christian or not? How come today you wear a collar when you preach? You true Christian or not? <laughs> and the list goes on. To be sure, some of you listening to this sermon may rightly discern and ask, but wait a minute, Pastor Edmund, the problem on the ground is not that we cannot agree over secondary things and issues. It is what constitutes primary things that is the problem here. We have differing views as to what things constitute primary things and what things constitute secondary things. When it comes to these secondary things, what may be secondary to me may be primary to you and vice versa. Or in other words, we may be strong when it comes to certain secondary things, but yet weak when it comes to another secondary thing. So in the commentary, Michael Bird confesses that he is strong in relation to the freedom to drink responsibly. Yeah? But yet at the same time, he is weak in relation to celebrating Halloween. That means certainly no Halloween horror nights at Sentosa for Michael Bird. You won't find him there. Okay? So how do we navigate through this whole barrage of secondary issues? Enter what has been called the theological or hermeneutical triage. Yeah? This is learning to develop within our own thinking or system a three-level way of seeing or sorting things in relation to the first level, the highest level, views essential to the faith. The middle level, 
views important to the faith and order of a church, but not necessary for salvation. And number three, the lowest level, views that may be treated with indifference and to do with a matter of conscience. And of course, to provide a further guide as to sorting out what belongs to which level, I would say that generally, our thoughts and beliefs that occupy the highest level, the essential things, they will be taken from the statements that arise from our creeds. As, Christi as Christians, we hold on to certain creeds. Okay? So we're talking about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and I would include the Chalcedonian Creed. Okay? And you're probably wondering, what in the world are you talking about, Pastor Edmund? I've never heard these creeds before. Okay? So maybe I, 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 I pray that one day we'll embark as a church series on some, some of these uh, preaching series on some of these creeds. Yeah? These creeds and these beliefs occupy the highest level, the primary things. They are the essentials and the non-negotiables for our salvation, such as knowing who is God, that He is the God of Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit that we worship. Then the next level, the middle level, what falls under that category is very often determined by our confessional theology or our denominational confessions. In these confessions, we will find a lot of other statements and doctrines that while not crucial for our salvation, nonetheless contain our denominational distinctives and wider body of teaching that preserves our distinctive way of reading scripture and being the church. So for us Presbyterians, it will be the Westminster Standards or the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example. In there, you will find our denominational stand on infant baptism, why we do infant baptism, the way that we understand the Lord's Supper. In there, you will find our position and our stand on marriage and divorce. And even in areas which the confession has not expressly prohibited, the denomination has allowed for freedom of conscience at the individual church level to practice. The example of women ordination being a case in point. And then finally, at the lowest level, there will be issues which are not essential for salvation and not important that the denomination wishes to take a firm stand as part of their distinctiveness. So the, the denomination doesn't see that as important. Okay? And these would include issues like alcohol, schemes of eschatology, you know, are you a pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill, and all of that, yeah? Bible translations. I'll readily admit that even this theological or hermeneutical triage is not foolproof. It, definitely, it doesn't definitely guarantee a clear-cut resolution when it comes to deciding whether a thing or issue is primary or secondary. But I do believe that at least for starters, it will help. How? It will help you and me to sort out within ourselves what belongs to what. Whether the thing or issue is at the highest level, the middle level, or the lowest level of the triage. And then from there, that will govern our conduct towards our fellow brother or sister. And returning to Romans 14, that will help us to welcome one another as Christ truly welcomed us by not judging one another or putting a stumbling block in each other's growth in Christ. I started the sermon by highlighting how one reason why we fail to truly welcome one another is because we are ultimately same, same, but different, with the emphasis on different. 
I think after going through Romans 14 and 15, it teaches us that perhaps we should reverse the saying. Can I call the next slide? Different, but same, same. With the emphasis on same, same. That yes, even though becoming Christians will not take away the differences between us, that you and I will still have our different views towards many secondary issues or things, but in all these differences, we are still same, same. Most of all, same, same, in that we belong to the same God and the same Christ by the same Holy Spirit. And because ultimately, it's different but same, same, that's why we truly welcome one another as Christ accepted us. Michael Bird tells in his commentary an imaginary story of how Romans 14.1 to 15.7 would have meant for the original church in Rome hearing this letter and this message. Allow me to end by reading that story out for us. Imagine a group of Gentile Christians in Rome, perhaps a mixture of slaves and artisans, sitting at the back of a leather worker's shop one night, huddled around a candle, singing a hymn, recounting their day and sharing what little food they had. One of the slaves is a scribe and is able to read from a notebook a few verses from Psalm 69. Then in walks Herodion, a Jewish freedman who has returned to Rome from Alexandria some weeks ago. Herodion turns to Rufus, the leader of the house church, and says, Kyrene Kai Arene, greetings and peace. Rufus has not seen Herodion for six years, and when they last met, there had been a ferocious debate about drinking wine. Herodian had visited Rufus' shop to explain why drinking pagan wine was wrong. It was defiled by its use in libations, so God worshippers must avoid it or risk God's judgment. Rufus wasn't convinced, and Herodian stormed off cursing Rufus and his pagan drink. Now, however, Rufus looks at Herodian. He looks weak and malnourished. Perhaps his master had cast him out for his Christian faith. Everyone in the group looks at Rufus to see what he will do. Rufus rises, kisses Herodian on the cheek, sits him down and gives him some bread and a few turnips and pours him a cup of water. He looks at Herodian and says, Fagate ga tau autu curio asman. Eat, for we all belong to the same Lord. That is why Paul wrote Romans. Let us pray. Forgive us, O Lord, for the many times that we have broken the unity and broken fellowship with one another over our disagreement regarding how we see many secondary things and issues. Thank you for reminding us through your word today that because Christ is our Lord and has welcomed us all, we must truly welcome one another. Help us not to judge one another, especially in relation to our views over secondary things. For at the end of the day, we have only one judge, and that is you, O Lord Christ. And you have promised us in your word that you will make us stand. Help us also not to so insist on the personal freedom that we have that it leads to us breaking the peace and unity, but rather in the exercise of our freedom that has come about through Christ our Lord. We pray that we may always exercise it, leading to peace, love, and unity. And so, Lord, this is our genuine prayer, that we may welcome one another 
as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Amen.